Hello and welcome to Bulldog Press Podcast. My name is Eric Davies and I'm your host and a student in Professor Spataro's class, Political Science 202. Our task today is to talk about what I've learned from the class and how it applies to my daily life. One of the most important concepts that I learned from the class is how our legal system of statutes and court rulings are set up to favor certain groups over others. We learned about many examples of how the legal system disfavored the rights of minority groups. I think that one important topic to understand is how people of different races have been treated differently by the legal system because of their skin color. The growing demand for labor on plantations needed a solution. European immigrants were deemed as poor candidates for slavery, not because of their race, but instead because they were short in supply and enslavement would interfere with voluntary immigration to the new colonies. Plantation owners viewed Africans as powerless, which made them ideal to be used as slaves. The plantation owners could only justify slavery by creating the myth that blacks were not people and were different than whites. These prejudiced attitudes against blacks became ingrained in our laws and only through the slow process of time and repeated judicial decisions and legislation was the civil rights movement born and began to make a difference. For example, the states had passed statutes that made it illegal for whites and blacks to go to the same school. These statutes were designed to keep African Americans from moving towards equality with whites. In Brown versus Board of Education, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation of children in public schools was unconstitutional because the educational facilities for racial minorities were inherently unequal in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. This was a small step forward that began incremental change in the rights of blacks in America. While much of the discussion focuses on important national U.S. Supreme Court cases and acts of Congress, it is important not to forget the impact that cases from state courts and state legislation can have a direct impact on the rights of minority groups. As another example, the states had enacted statutes in an attempt to criminalize homosexual conduct. Again, the majority was using its power to create laws to aim the power of the state at specific minority groups. In her book, Queers in Court, Gay Rights Law, and Public Policy, Susan Gluck Mazet discusses the use of criminal statutes to criminalize sexual conduct. States had enacted a number of statutes that were directed at homosexual conduct, and the U.S. government had immigration policies that were directed at homosexuals. In Boutelier v. Immigration and Naturalization Service of 1966, the U.S. Supreme Court's bias against homosexuals was on full display when the majority upheld the barring of homosexuals from immigration to the United States. The majority wrote, This change of nomenclature is not to be construed in any way as modifying the intent to exclude all aliens who are sexual deviates. In making its ruling, the court aligned homosexual conduct with sexual deviates. As a final example, in Bowers v. Harbick of 1986, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld Georgia's banning on sodomy. In upholding the statute, The court reviewed the long line of privacy cases before and following Griswold and declared that the right to privacy had been expanded only to certain types of activity under the umbrella of family relationships, procreation, and marriage. These values did not extend privacy rights to homosexuals engaging in sodomy. Justice White wrote that these prior cases could not be reasonably construed to confer a fundamental right to privacy to homosexuals engaging in sodomy. Again, 
the majority had used its legal power to target a minority group. It would take decades more of legal fights to begin to erode the fundamental prejudice of the legal system towards a more just treatment of homosexual rights. All right, so today I'm here with civil rights attorney Terry J. Barnett to talk about a Washington state case that illustrates how our legal system can be set up to favor certain groups over others. The name of the case is Hawthorne v. Vasquez, which was a 2011 state Supreme Court case. This case involved a gay couple, Frank Vasquez and Robert Schwartzler, I believe I'm saying that right, that was involved in a committed relationship over 28 years and ran a family business together. The couple's assets and the proceeds of their businesses were legally held in Robert's name. But unfortunately, Robert died without a will and his estate went into probate court in Pierce County Superior Court in Tacoma, Washington. Frank made a claim to the personal representative of the estate for a share of the assets collected by the couples while they were together. The personal representative denied Frank's request to share in the assets and the issue had to be decided by the court. Hello, Terry, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. How did you get involved in Mr. Vasquez's case? Well, I practiced law in Tacoma for decades at the law firm of Rumbaugh, Rideout, and Barnett. Um, We handled a lot of personal injury cases, but one day I got an interesting call from Frank Vasquez late on a Friday afternoon. Frank had been involved in a loving relationship with his partner of 28 years, Robert Schwartzler. They had several businesses together, owned various vehicles, and they had purchased a home. Unfortunately, all of the assets were in Robert's name only. He was the one that handled all the business in the family. And when Robert died, he had no will. Robert's son had been appointed by the court as a personal representative of the estate. But Robert had never told his son that he was involved in a homosexual relationship with Frank. When Frank made a claim with the estate for his share of the assets, the claim was denied by the son. That day when Frank called, I knew I had to take the case. How did the law make it more difficult for Frank to assert his property rights? Well, it was a very bad situation because Frank was um, being kicked out of his house that he had lived in for decades by the personal representative, and he didn't have access to any of the bank accounts. So we had to figure out uh, what we were going to do to to bring a claim. And at that point, gay couples did not have the same rights as married couples in Washington. Frank and Robert didn't have the same option that heterosexual couples had at the time, that was the right to marry. They didn't have that option. If they had been married, a Washington statute would have automatically given all the community property accumulated during their marriage to the surviving spouse, which would have been Frank if they had been married. But unfortunately, they were unable to get married and Frank had no legal standing or recourse to claim the property and was stuck in a situation where he was going to be in a court battle with um, Robert's family members. Uh, Fortunately, we did have some case law on our side, and there had been a case decided, uh, Connell versus Francisco, in 1995 by the Washington Washington State Supreme Court. And in that case, um, the court had recognized that 
a meretricious relationship could exist um, in which a gay couple could have a marital-like standing and that property acquired by the couple during their relationship should be subject to the same presumption of joint ownership that it would have had if the parties had been married. In making that determination that the relationship was significant enough to give rise to a community-like presumption, the Canal Court considered five factors. One, continuous cohabitation. Two, the duration of the couple's relationship. Three, the purpose of that relationship. Four, the pooling of resources and services for their mutual benefit. And five, the party's intent. So the job of the court was to weigh these five factors and determine whether or not a significant relationship existed that justified um, division of the property. And the Canal Court dealt specifically with a relationship that um, had ended in in a breakup. And what we were trying to do was apply that same um, analysis to a situation where a a couple one of the the members of the of the couple had died and we were trying to claim assets of the estate so based on the canal factors uh we thought we had a solid claim that frank had a right to claim his community property assets and um you know get access to the house and his bank accounts and the other property that they had collected over their years together all right so my next question is what happened at the trial court level? Well, the case was filed in Pierce County, and we brought a motion for summary judgment trying to get the court to agree with us that um, that Frank had a right to claim the community assets. And so we brought a motion for summary judgment, and we had a hearing before the court, and we filed a number of affidavits and other proof um, for people that knew Frank and Robert that described the nature of their relationship, both from a personal standpoint as well as their business relationship. And um, fortunately, the trial court agreed with us and agreed that using the Canel um, rationale that and the five factors that were considered in Canel, that Frank had a right to claim the community assets and um, that the personal representative's denial of Frank's claim was unjustified. And so we won at the trial court level. But unfortunately, that wasn't the end of the story. So Terry, explain to me what happened next. Well, after we won at the trial court level, the personal representative of the estate filed an appeal to Division Two of the Washington Court of Appeals, which is the mid-level court, appellate court, between the trial level and the Washington State Supreme Court. And the case went up on appeal, and um, it it went before a panel of judges uh, who sat on Division Two of the Court of Appeals. And the, the panel of judges unfortunately decided that um, a meretricious relationship applying the canal standard uh, was not was a quasi marital relationship and because persons of the same sex could not legally be married that a meretricious relationship could not exist between the members of the same sex and as a result of that finding they they reversed 
the decision of the trial court and held that, that Frank could not benefit from the meretricious relationship, quasi-marital relationship standard that had existed or concept that had existed in the law um, before his case. And that was a rough day for us. Uh, you know, Frank was, was really disappointed in the outcome. So um, we made the decision that this was an important case, not only for Frank, but for all same-sex couples, and that we needed to challenge the case in the Supreme Court. So, Terry, explain to me what happened in the Supreme Court. Well, uh, we finally got up to the Supreme Court in 2001, and by that point, the case had been going on for a number of years, and Judge Johnson, Justice Johnson, issued the um, opinion of the court, and he framed the issue in the case as whether the facts were sufficient to grant summary judgment based on the equitable doctrine of meretricious relationship. That's how the court framed the question. And in deciding the question, some commentators later had described the outcome in the case as sort of one step forward and two steps back, because on the one hand, we um, were able to prevail um, and get the the Court of Appeals decision reversed. But on the other hand, um, we didn't prevail in a way that really advanced the rights of same-sex couples in the same way that we had hoped. So the Supreme Court um, decided, and this is on um, page 737 of the decision, they wrote, they said, Vasquez presents claims of equitable relief under several theories, including meretricious relationship, implied partnership, and equitable trust. And those were alternative theories that we had argued, not only that there was a meretricious relationship, but that the, the two men had an implied partnership, um, that they were working together towards a common goal to accumulate assets, and that when one of them died unexpectedly, that the partnership should um, equitably allow the remaining partner to get his share of the assets. An equitable trust was a similar concept. But the court said, and I quote, when equitable claims are brought, the focus remains on the equities involved between the parties. Equitable claims are not dependent on the legality of the relationship between the parties, nor are they limited by the gender or sexual orientation of the parties, period. So what the court did here is they rejected the um, Court of Appeals comment or, or holding that because these were same-sex couples, they couldn't benefit from meretricious relationship. So in that regard, we had, we had won an important point that um, we, we hope would benefit same-sex couples in the future. But on the other hand, the case got sent back down to the trial court for the trial court to engage in more fact-finding in, in terms of um, you know, the nature, quality, and go through the various canal factors that had not been fully developed at the trial court level at that point in time. So, you know, at the end of the case, uh, we, we had won a small victory um, in, in terms of the civil rights of same-sex couples. So, Terry, what could Frank and Robert have done differently to prevent this from happening? 
Well, it's, it's really important, especially when your rights are not protected by an, a statute that automatically gives you status and rights. It's important to have a will. And if Robert had had a will um, giving you know all of his property and the community property and spelling out what the, the expectation was in advance, the same problem would not have occurred. So... You know, I, I'd recommend to anybody who, um, even if you are married, it's a good idea to have a will, but especially if you're involved in a relationship with another person, a long-standing committed relationship, it's important that you have a will that um, sets forth what you want to happen with your property in the event, in the event that you um, pass along. All right, Frank, thanks for coming on the podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to share before you head out? Thanks for having me, Eric. It was it was a true pleasure representing Frank, and I'm glad I was able to tell my story today. I, I hope everybody learned a little something about the law in Washington State. Frank Vasquez's case is just another example of how our laws are set up to favor certain groups. If you have the right to legally get married, you will be protected by the probate statutes, even if your spouse dies without, without a will. At the time that Robert died, Frank did not have any legal standing under the probate statutes and could have been denied his interest in the property that they had worked so hard on to accumulate together. He could have lost his home and his income. It's important that we as students of politics recognize that those who write the laws set up winners and losers. The laws set up insiders and outsiders. It's important that we take a stand as students and try to put pressure on our elected officials and judges to make the laws that provide a level of playing field for everyone. All right, and that's the podcast. Um, it's been fun. I just want to give a special thank you to Terry for coming on the podcast. Couldn't have done it without him. And Bulldog Press signing off.